Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is a continue of Guide Talker, Guys Who Talk. That is going to be what we got planned for the next 30 minutes, and then Joe Dallas is going to join me at 5.30, so you don't want to miss any of this hour. We've got some great questions that have come in that we got in the last hour that we haven't addressed yet, but we're going to get to them starting right now. Okay, here we go. Oh, my power panel, by the way, is still the same from last hour. Jeff Redorn and Tom Parrish, and we're glad they're here. They will answer your question, 877-933-2484. All right. My brother has a six-year-old son that I just found out about several months ago. He's never met him. My parents know, but my sister doesn't. It's like this big family secret. I believe my brother is living in sin. He believes he is not living in sin. This whole thing makes me so sad. My heart breaks for this little boy and his mother. The question is, what should I do? I've been involved in these situations. I know how real this is. Um, I've actually gone over with one young woman that thought that this guy was her father, and we did the, the DNA swab in the mouth. Right. Turned out he was the dad, you know, and I mean, that was from like 30 years ago. Here's what I would say uh, to your brother. Love your brother, but don't have any fear to tell your brother the truth. That little boy is desperately going to want a father, and he's going to be looking for a father, and either your, your brother takes advantage of it now and admits that he's responsible and this is his child and takes, you know, gets involved in that child's life, or when that child turns 18 or 19, they're going to buy 23 and me, and they're going to start looking and they will find him. And so what I found is that it's much better if the, the person involved, the dad, takes the initiative to go to the woman and say, I've sinned against you and against the Lord. This is my son. Everything proves that. I will I will be here to support him, and I will be a dad. As compared to when they're 18, and that the 18-year-old finds the dad and is mad at the dad for never having been there. I, I In these kinds of situations, not knowing all the personalities and stuff, but generally, I think light is the answer more than keeping things in darkness. I, I think God is a God of truth and that sin loves darkness. The fact that this guy made a mistake and had a kid out of wedlock or whatever the situation is, we don't have all the details. Uh, okay, so that's gone. That's done. That's kind of, you know, that's spilt milk. That's water under bridge kind of thing. As Tom said, that doesn't, as we were talking about earlier, that doesn't make this whole relationship bad or somehow tarnished or sinful. No, you have an opportunity to love this child, to bring it to light, and and uh, if he is a Christian, to teach this young uh, child about God and his ways. That's his exhortation. So, you know, it's never wrong to do the right thing. That six-year-old, the happiest thing that could happen to him on his birthday, Christmas, or Easter, or whatever, is for dad to show up and say, I'm your dad. I'm sorry I wasn't here. I love you, and I will be here from this moment on. I have watched kids that that's happened to, and it changes their lives. I think God would bless that. He would. What verses come to mind if you find yourself having a day or a season 
where your spiritual fire seems gone? You know, this is one of these questions about faith versus feeling, basically. Um, And I am so thankful that my salvation is not based on my feelings, but it's a matter of faith. Because there are days that I feel close to God. There are days that I don't feel close to God. But the reality is, the biblical reality, what God says in his word, is that in those days that I don't feel close to God, I'm still united with him and his child. And on those days that I'm really close to him and I'm on a spiritual high, I'm still a child of God and united with him. So it's not dependent about how I feel, thankfully. Well, it's kind of like marriage. Successful marriages are marriages where after the initial six months is worn off and the lust is worn off and the excitement and all of that, then you got to decide, am I going to love this woman or am I going to love this man? Not based upon what I can get from them, not based on the excitement they give me, but based upon now my relationship with them. And they are my family. This is my bride. This is, we're one flesh. The same with the Lord. You go by the word and what it says about his attitude toward you, whether you feel like it or not, but you act on it, whether you feel like it or not, because of what he said. Yeah, you can't you can't live in a state of spiritual high every single day. It's just it's I don't think it's possible. And if if you didn't have the normal times and the average times, the spiritual high would not be a spiritual high now, would it? Well, that's why I get called a Jesus freak once in a while. <laughs> Usually pretty up, but yeah, you're right. I have my ups and downs like everybody. All right, next question, gentlemen. There are many different canons of scriptures. So how do we know for certain that ours is the right one and we are not missing any God? breathed words. Wow, this is a kind of a long discussion, the whole process of the canon, and I, I've studied this to a certain degree and have taught on it. Um, you know, there's, there's, this, is, this is what I like to say about the process of the canon. The early church were, were using virtually all the books uh, of the New Testament, uh, except for Revelation and maybe James, um, very early on, before there was any canon ever documented. Um, these letters were being circulated. The church thought they were scripture, but they were using them as scripture, and so they, they were scripture to the early church. What happened was is that we started getting some other documents, uh, generally under the label called the Gnostic Gospels, mm-hmm. that started to come along, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel, I can't even remember them all off the top of my head. But they started coming along, trying to impersonate, if you will, uh, being scripture themselves. And they weren't. Clearly, they weren't. Um, so the church said, hey, we better make an official list of what we've been using. So it's not that the canon process declared it as God's word. It was already God's word, and and they just basically wrote it down and said, here it is. Here's what we've been using. I agree with you, and that's a very good explanation because we don't have to live in any fear of that. I mean, I've read Enoch. I've read the Gospel of Thomas. I've read these other Gospels out there, um, the Assumption of Moses. You know, they really don't contribute that much to the canon of what we read. Do they, they, to me, they don't even sound like No, scripture. they don't. Most yeah. of them don't. But here's the bottom line. First of all, we have a Lord who says, I am the, the Lord of the living and the dead. And I have the right to raise my body up or, you know, not. He rose from the dead. You think he'd have a problem with the canons? Mm -hmm. I think the canons we have are the canons he wants us to have. Now, I'm going to go one step further, and don't get me wrong on this. But if you had nothing but the Gospel of John, 
You got everything you need. There's nothing more you need for living, for eternity, for forgiveness, for purpose. It's all there. And I love Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I love the epistles. And I love the Psalms. But that's what you need. And the biggest challenge for me is not how big should the canon be or not be. Will I obey and respond to this Jesus who's revealed in Scripture. Yeah. And remember, the New Testament was completed by 95. Revelation is thought to have been written around 95 AD. Uh, the rest of it much earlier than that, actually. So every, the New Testament was all written by eyewitnesses within the lifetime of those who uh, could have seen the risen Lord. These Gnostic Gospels came at a minimum of 100 to 150 years later uh, when all of the eyewitnesses were gone. Uh, we know that the Gospel of John was written by... John, yep. the Gospel of Thomas, came a couple hundred years after the life of Thomas, so it was written by somebody else, not yeah. an eyewitness. That's one of the key distinctions. All right. I'll, I'll push this one step further. When I was in seminary, I was one of the few people, and I did my research because I was always in the library. I believe even Revelation was written before 70 A.D., and the reason I believe that is the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus, and, the, and in Jerusalem was run over, and they were scattered around the world. Jesus talked a lot about, I am the temple, or now your body is the temple. Mm -hmm. And he talked a lot about the, the, the laws. Don't you think that would somehow be in these writings if somehow th they were aware of that? Oh, by the way, the temple just got destroyed, just like Jesus said it would. You know, no, the bottom line is Jesus is the one that we focus on. But I believe the temple was gone in 70 AD, and I believe it was all written before then. Hmm. When I was in school, I didn't know where the library was. <laughs> I had to be pointed to it a lot. Don't worry. Uh, all right. Here's a question, gentlemen. Do we know what gate Jesus entered Jerusalem through on the donkey on uh, Palm Sunday? I've heard two separate answers, the triumphant gate and the sheep gate. Oh, well, it's the eastern gate. Yeah. The eastern gate is the gate that faces the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane and so on. Uh, there's actually uh, some amazing uh, things about this gate. Um, and, and the eastern gate has a name, and now I can't remember what the name is. I don't think it's called the Triumphant Gate. Maybe I'll look it up here in just a second. But um, that's the gate that he would have gone through, the eastern gate on the donkey. What's fascinating is that Scripture says that when he returns, he's going to come from the east and he's going to walk through that same gate. However, that gate is sealed up today. Yeah. Scripture actually prophesies that it's going to remain sealed until the Messiah comes through. And it was sealed up uh, when, when Israel was controlled by the Ottomans, and I can't remember exactly what year this was, 800 AD is sticking into my head, uh, but there was supposedly a rumor that the Messiah was going to return and and conquer Jerusalem so the so he had oh it's called the golden gate so he had it sealed up and it's remained sealed up to this date um, he also by the way put graves in front of the eastern gate uh, because it was believed that a holy man wouldn't walk over tombs and this was all in an attempt to keep Jesus out but one day scripture says and it will therefore happen that Jesus will return he'll feet his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives directly across from that eastern gate, and he will walk through that eastern gate as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that wall will crumble in his presence. <laughs> All right, we'll take one last break, and we'll be back with our last segment of Guy Talk, and then uh, I've got Joe Dallas coming on after that. So don't go anywhere. 877-933-2484. I hope you've had a great day. I've been thinking about you today and knowing 
that uh, we all have some days that are good and other days that are tough. And if you arrive to listen to Guy Talk, hopefully your day gets better. We'll be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to Guide Talk. Great questions coming in today. Really good questions. Uh, thank you, Mike, who said, great show. Are the ten toes of the statue in Daniel chapter 2 a representation of the ten horns of the Antichrist and possibly the two feet, the false prophet's two horns? Yes. The the ten toes, we are told, actually, who they are. They are ten kings yep. who will give the Antichrist his power during the tribulation period. Um, I, if I recall, seven give it what appears voluntarily. Three have to be kind of overcome or defeated by the Antichrist. But whoever these ten kings are, and we don't know who they are, um, th- these are future kings that will be alive during the tribulation period that will give the Antichrist uh, his power. That is then his, becomes his kingdom. So yes, the feet uh, of of the statue of Daniel is this what's often referred to as the revived Roman Empire. It's the future empire of the Antichrist. The ten co- toes are ten kings, and yes, they re- they uh, correspond to the ten horns. And if you recall uh, about the ten horns imagery, another horn comes up in Daniel. I think it's eleven, maybe, uh, where the 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 little horn is boastful. And that, that's the Antichrist. So he rises up somehow in these 10 and then becomes the, the largest of the horns and in some way, shape, or form becomes this globalist uh, kind of leader that the whole world is going to worship. I have nothing to add to that. Good job. Nice. Very nice. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, can people be saved if they've never heard about Jesus? Well, Paul talks in Romans about the fact that, you know, what they have has been revealed to them through nature and that, uh, you know, that the Lord is eminently just. If somebody has never heard about Jesus or the gospel, the Lord will deal with them still based upon what Jesus has done by his shed blood, but he will deal with them on what they knew. Now, we might say, then why should we take the gospel into all the world? Very simply. When I was in Bangladesh, the Muslim men there who had come to Christ, I said, is it worth it to know Jesus, but have your family reject you, have people beat you, have people, you know, literally you don't have a job? And they looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And they said, well, of course, we now have forgiveness and freedom, and we know we're going to heaven when we die. So even those that don't hear desperately want that inner peace, and the Lord wants to give that to him, and that's why we're told to take the gospel into the whole world. This is kind of the uh, the guy in the Amazon question, right? I've, I've 
you know, you guys have probably come across this question as well, where you're talking about salvation. Scripture says it's found in no one else but the name of Jesus. Acts says uh, there's no other name under heaven and earth by which men can be saved. Paul writes to Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So what about the guy in the Amazon who's never heard of Jesus? And, and as you were saying, God has given us general Revelation, sure. theologians call it general revelation, basically creation. All creation declares God's glory so that man is without excuse. Man should be able to open up his eyes, look at the creation that he sees around them, and know that there is a creator. Just as if you were to look at a painting, you know inherently that there was a painter of that painting. So, too, God says when you look at creation, man should know there's a creator. And in some way, shape, or form, Jeremiah 29 says that when you seek the Lord, you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. If you're anywhere on this planet and you seek the God of creation, I think you will find him. Yes. All right. Here's a question. How would you men encourage young men to flee youthful lusts? when pornography and computers are so easily accessible and what our scriptures do think on relating to this subject. Now, if I can just interject one other thing. Mm -hmm. I I saw this, a friend of mine sent me this last week, and it was a list of the number of years it took each product to gain 50 million users. For example, cars was 62 years, TV was 22 years, YouTube was four years, Twitter was two years, and Pornhub was 19 days. Hmm. Sure. To get 50 million users. You know, AI was about a day, and it had 50 artificial intelligence, some of the chat GPT and stuff. I think it was about a day or two, and it was at 50 million users. But um, look, there's nothing new under the sun. It doesn't matter if if, uh, the temptation is coming to you on a phone or a screen or a TV or a theater screen or uh, by a a young lady who was washing herself uh, down from David's castle uh, from his house and uh, and he saw Bathsheba. Uh, It really doesn't matter. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no temptation that it sees you except which is common to man. So the temptation is always there. Look, if you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, then you're not going to fix your eyes on the things of this world. But the world has many distractions. You know, one of the things that that I try to do is instead of looking at the physical, look at the spiritual. We are inherently spiritual beings, right? As C.S. Lewis says, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body, and if we start seeing people's souls, right? Maybe the physical won't be so tempting. But you might think, is that person saved? Do they know Christ? How can I help them grow in faith? Those kinds of questions. I have two granddaughters, and I don't think this. I have five grandsons, so when I had the two granddaughters, believe me, it hit me even harder because suddenly I thought, who's going to be looking at them? You know, what's going to happen to their life? And so right now with the, the four young women I have in my confirmation training, mm-hmm. what I've tried to teach them is that their identity is in Jesus, not some 17-year-old who says they're the most beautiful girl in the world at that moment while they're in the car right. and he's trying to kiss her. The, the identity comes from Jesus. And 
I wish, here's two things I wish. I wish the young men would do exactly what you said, Jeff, and get Jesus in their mind and begin to look at people through the filter of Jesus. So they begin to look at, if they put Jesus between them and that woman, believe me, it'll change the way they look at them. It's when Jesus is out of the picture, it's a problem. The other thing is we have to pray for the young women who seem to find too much of their identity in doing these kind of things because there are millions of women involved. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying without Jesus, it's easy to get trapped in that stuff because it's so much a part of our nature. And the only way to make your your Jesus eyes to see the world through that lens is, I think, is to study the Word of God. It is. And, and we, we have a deficit of understanding of the Word of God in this country. And and as we have kicked God out, as the as Scripture has been been less known and less valued and less understood and less studied in this country. Well, I mean, just look at where our country is is going. Um, I, I think we have, there's a root cause to all of our problems. And in the end, it is a spiritual problem. We are kicking God out and we are realizing the consequences. All I right. think, Go ahead, Tom. I, I would love to see every pastor in this country get in the pulpit on Sunday morning or into Sunday school class and start with asking, how have you seen Jesus this week? How is Jesus touched your life? How has Jesus kept you from getting in trouble? What divine appointments have you had? Because I think most of us don't know how to look. We need to be taught how to look. And when we learn how to look for Jesus in these situations, believe me, he wants to step in during those times of temptation to help us. He doesn't leave us abandoned, but most of us don't know what that means or how to look. Okay, three minutes. Each of you are going to get a question here. I'm starting with you, Tom Parrish. Uh, do you know anything about Native Americans' belief system? Do they believe in the Bible's God and Jesus' death and resurrection? Some of them do. I mean, my great-grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee, so I have a, a heritage and I have a fairly good understanding, and I've studied the tribal traditions, and there were many, many tribes uh, in the United States. You know, we always talk about, you know, they worship the Great Spirit. Well, until Jesus came along and they, the missionaries brought the name of Jesus, they didn't know who to identify him as. Hmm. So even among the Native Americans, there were people that were seeking, like you said, Jeff, really seeking the Lord. But then you had a whole group that weren't really seeking the Lord. They were just seeking power. They were seeking you know, to control their enemies or whatever. And that's lost. Native American spirituality is no better than knowing the name of Jesus and serving him. And so there's nothing noble about it one way or the other. All right. One last question. Look in your direction, Jeff Verdorn. I have a friend who has been trying to show that Jesus was not sinless by citing a few passages of Scripture, notably Mark 5.13, where Jesus sends spirits into pigs and they die. My friend argues that this is considered theft and is also demeaning to creation. How would you respond to this? Well, I would come back with all of the many passages that says that he was the Lamb of God without sin, spotless, without blemish. He was tempted in every way, but was without sin. Scripture declares it uh, a number of times. It's not theft to cast demons out of people into animals in any way, shape, or form. So, um, yeah, it's very important that Jesus was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the perfect sacrifice for man's sin. All right. An extended version of Guide Talk, and I wish we had more time. There's so we do many too. great questions that are still Always coming fun. in. Especially so, when you're paid on commission like we are. Yeah, right. Right. I love my right. dad. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can leave today with a big fat nothing. All right. How does that sound? All right. Well, that wraps up our time for Guide Talk. Thank you so much to Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. Your questions, uh, I'll put them in a file. Well, we're going to take a break and come back with Joe Dallas. We'll be right back.
And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. Isn't the Lord good to me? The Lord is good to me because I just concluded a rousing 90 minutes of guy talk with my guest, Jeff Verdorn and uh, Pastor Tom Parrish. And I was looking forward to welcoming uh, Joe Dallas to the show. And all of a sudden, no Joe Dallas. And wouldn't you know it? The guy talk guys are still in the studio. <laughs> we haven't left. <laughs> you haven't left. So thank you for that. So yeah, I guess we're having our ultimate two-hour guy talk marathon today. Have we ever done two hours? Before? No, but it's about time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it always goes so fast. Yeah. So uh, we still, I still have questions from the the last ninety minutes. So Good. we can start with those. And because we're going to take a few more of your questions, so send them over if you like. And if you're um, uh, wondering. What kind of questions you can send over? Uh, really anything. The Bible, something you learned in church or a Bible study or something that uh, is going on in your life that you would like some some uh, help with. Anything is fine. 877-933-2484. All right, here's a question, guys. How would you describe the difference between your soul and spirit? Your soul well, and spirit. Paul talks about one that we... We have to kind of look at the theological discussion as are we a two-part being or a three-part being? Um, scripture indicates that, as Paul says, that may your whole body, soul, and spirit kept, be kept, kept blameless before the coming of the Lord. So your body uh, is, is the Greek uh, soma. It's the physical part of you. Your soul is your suke in the Greek. It's your mind, your will, emotion, memory. And your spirit, that pneuma uh, part of you, is the spiritual part of you that in the garden was alive and united with God, but then Adam sinned and and died that day, and he died spiritually that day and became spiritually dead or separated from God. And now when we believe and are saved, our spirit becomes alive once again. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you are born again. Uh, so your spirit becomes alive or united with God. So the soul part of you is what makes you you, your mind, will, emotion, memory. When you believe in it, when you're lost, your spiritual part of you is, Scripture describes, describes that as being dead, but when you believe and are saved, it is made alive and united with God. So there is a distinction between the immaterial part of you, the soul, and then the spiritual part of you. I can't add anything to that, Jeff. You've really covered the basis. That's right. good. All right. There are great people of God who started well, but at the end they went astray. Mm. Example of King Solomon. Do we think King Solomon will go to heaven? I can't judge, but I'm not real happy with where he wound up. <laughs> no, but I, I, that part I don't know. It doesn't look good when you read about him. And his wives and building temples to Shemash and uh, uh, Molech. But again, that's up to the Lord, not to me. Hmm. This is also one of these things that are debated. Solomon, King Saul is another one who God uh, anointed with his spirit, but then took his spirit away. And many say that he therefore was not saved. On this side of the cross, when God says he gives you the spirit, he says it will be with you forever. And therefore, I think we can 
uh, conclude from Scripture that as a believer in Christ, we have assurance of salvation uh, because we're saved by faith. We get the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is with us forever. And for many other New Testament reasons, we have true assurance of salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, they were still saved by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So in this question, I fall towards that they also had assurance. They didn't have assurance that the Spirit would be with them forever. They were never born again like we are born again on this side of the cross. But I think even if they didn't finish well, they are still saved by faith. So I lean on on the conclusion that, he would. We're going to see Solomon in heaven, and actually, even Saul in heaven. They believed God. They had faith, but they didn't finish very well. That's a different question. I'm not going to argue with that. I hope they're there too. Mm-hmm. I really don't want anybody excluded. Um, I I don't know. I, I you and I, Jeff and Bill. The thing I appreciate about you two guys is we try to be honest with what the word says, not with what we want it to say. And I'm just, I got to look further. I don't know. And we, we, we never can really see another man's heart, let alone someone we haven't even met. No. So, you know, I get this question a lot. You know, my my son or my father or whatever, they they said they were a Christian and they walked away and now they're walking far from God. I, I believe Scripture says that once you're born again, you're born again for all of eternity. Now, that's the doctrine about that, about the particular instance and that person I, I can't give you an answer because I can't see their heart. Mm-hmm. All right. This next question, I have no idea who's going to answer this one. Sounds like a setup, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> We're ready. All right. I thought Martin Luther believed faith plus nothing for salvation. Confused why Lutherans think you need to be baptized also to be saved. The Luther was very, very strong. You know, remember, he was a Roman Catholic monk who never was trying to leave Catholicism. He was trying to reform the church. Uh, Baptism was already an integral part of Catholicism, even with infants. So I I don't see him trying to change a whole lot there. When Luther came along, he said the problem is, and it was dealing with the indulgences, that you could get out of purgatory if you paid so much money and prayed for those that had died. And he said, that's not necessary. The only thing that's necessary is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lutheranism kind of developed out of that, but there are elements there that I don't think Luther would really have directly uh, addressed. Where he did address it, he would say simply this. He would say that in the covenant of baptism, the Lord brings the saving grace. But the issue is, even for Luther, you still had to believe in Jesus. It wasn't an exclusion of that. So as I tell people, because I'm Lutheran, so I baptize I baptized infants, I baptize adults. What I say at baptism, even for infants, is parents and church, it is your responsibility that as this child grows to tell them who formed this covenant with you. His name is Jesus, and they need to surrender their life to him and walk with him. I'm not a Lutheran who simply says, well, they were baptized when they were nine days old, so no matter what they believe, they're going to heaven. No, there's always a response necessary, and that response is always with Jesus. Yeah, one of one of Martin Luther's main points in, on his thesis that he, he nailed to the, the Wittenberg door was, was that you are saved by faith alone, right. not by faith plus works and how you live your life and stuff, this kind of the system that he was— uh, trying to reform in Roman Catholicism, but by faith alone, which is what Scripture declares. For example, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one 
can boast. So that was one of Luther's main points. And he had three major points. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by scripture alone. We're saved by grace alone. And it was going right back to the scriptures you're talking about. All right. Second Samuel chapter 9. That's David and Mephibosheth. Am I saying that right? That's a hard name to say. People chef, yeah. Yeah. Um, talk about the kindness of David. Go ahead and give it the passage again. I want to make sure. Uh, I'm sorry. Second Samuel 9. Yeah, Second Samuel 9. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? You know the story? Yeah, I know the story now. Mm -hmm. I love King David in the sense that he attempted to be a king who engrafted Everything of Yahweh in his heart and life and his relationships. Did he always do it? No. But he did try to do that. And with with this, when Ziba came along and Jonathan's son, he showed him respect. Mm -hmm. He showed him love. He saw that he came from the line of Saul and that Saul was Lord's anointed uh, the first time around. So I respect that in, in King David. And that is so opposite of the way the world has operated if you go back and you look at kings and their families in history, they're always killing off the last king's family when the king dies, when the new king comes to power. David wasn't that way. He wanted to preserve it because he understood the covenant the Lord had made with Saul and with Israel and the covenant he had made with him. And I respect that. I, I'm very impressed. There's a couple stories uh, about David where you you know he gets a bad rack, rap after of you know for the Bathsheba stuff and the the sin and and Uriah sending him off to battle and so on. But there's some scenes where you really get a glimpse of this guy's heart. And one of my favorites is when he's he's fleeing from Saul and at every right to take him out and disrupt their enemies. Right, Saul wanted to take him out and kill him, but he sneaks up to him. And 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 unnoticed, it says. I think it's Psalm First uh, Samuel twenty four. And he cuts a piece of his robe off, right, to show him that hey, I could have taken your life, but didn't. You know what's interesting about David, and I love these stories about King David and Solomon and all of them, is that the Bible only has one Savior. His name is Jesus. Hmm. He's the only one that is perfect and has you know covered our sins by his shed blood. David was a great man who was flawed, just like all the rest of us. And although he is a great hero in the Old Testament, he is not our Savior. And so I am not trying to pattern my life after David. I want to pattern my life after my Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. And and I think think it says in Scripture that David wanted to honor the Lord's choice as king, and that's why he didn't take him out. So he honored that. All right, gentlemen, uh, where— did Moses and the Israelites cross the Red Sea when they were leaving Egypt and fleeing from Pharaoh and his army? Now, mm. before you answer that question, mm-hmm. I think we've got, I have this an idea. We could open up like a, a water theme park in the Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> <laughs> and for like a dollar, you can be an Israelite or for $20, you could be part of the Egyptian army. <laughs> we part the, part the water and you can walk across it. And then at a command, the water just collapses. I'm, never, I'm never sure you'll find it. investors for that. I'm <laughs> positive. Well, it's like a dollar if you want to be an Israelite. But if you want to be in Pharaoh's you know, army, 
20 bucks. Yeah. I, I know that you've had Tim Mahoney on before. I He's have. a filmmaker. And he has done a series of films, Patterns of, of uh, Evidence, The Exodus. And in his documentaries, he actually goes through and talks to many experts about this very question. Um, there are several spots along the Gulf of Aqaba, which is at the northern end of the Red Sea, on the east side of the Sinai, that cross into what is today Saudi Arabia, where he goes on to say he actually thinks that Mount Sinai is, not in the Sinai, but in Saudi Arabia, this uh, this mountain called Jebel Allah's, and there's uh, many evidences that this is actually the mountain of Moses or the mountain of God, uh, but it's it's fenced off by the Saudis today. But um, um, So the crossing point, you know, you have to decide, the Gulf of Aqaba is thousands of feet deep, so did God separate the waters of the Red Sea uh, to the depths of a couple thousand feet. There's a couple places where some believe that that possibly could have happened. But another theory, and I tend to lean on this, we don't know for sure, is a proper interpretation of the Red Sea is actually the Sea of Reeds and this marshy area in the northern end of the Sinai where the east wind could blow and separate off the waters and make dry ground. And then when the Egyptian army came, it filled back up to a depth of maybe 12 feet instead of a couple thousand feet. Um seems to fit better. And I, and I can't remember how Tim Mahoney dealt with this in his film. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is we don't have the, we don't know for sure the exact place of the crossing of Moses. All right, let me go back to my theme park question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Would you want to be walking through my theme park with these wall, these daunting walls of water on either side? Or would you want to be walking through my theme park when the water collapses? Are you designing the park? Yeah, I'm just okay. working on it right now. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very I'm, distracted right now. I want to rethink that whole park. thing. <laughs> it's good. You know, if you, get you. It, if you get it built and people are willing to come, I'm willing to watch them go through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And follow-up question to the question about the Lutherans believe that um, it's faith uh, that you need to be baptized to be saved. So the follow-up is... So does the Lutheran believe that if you weren't baptized before you died, that you could still be saved if you believed? I have a friend that is Lutheran who believes that you must be baptized trying to witness to her. The truth of Lutheranism is this. We are as divided as the rest of Christianity, and I hate to say that. You got Lutherans who would say exactly that. What what his friend said to him. You've got other Lutherans who are saying baptism has nothing to do with it. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. There were pietistic uh, Lutherans, you know, Haugi Christians, Haugi Lutherans. What does Haugi mean? Haugi was the name of one of the, the forefathers that came over here from Sweden okay. and helped establish the Lutheran Church. The point is simply this. Baptism in and of itself, yep, covenant of the Lord. I don't argue with that. I don't have any issues there. However... Those children that die in the womb or those children that die before they get baptized, if that is the real prerequisite to getting into the kingdom of God, then the rest of the New Testament makes no sense by, since it's by the shed blood of Jesus. And for me, it's still Jesus. Hmm. All right. We'll take one last break and we'll be back with more God Talk, an extended, extended version today, double extended version. So 877-933-2484. Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn are my guests. Be right back.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. All right, we're back with Guy Talk, or guys who talk. Great questions coming in. Do you think when Jesus spoke about the fig tree blossoms that this generation shall not pass away? Is this fig tree Israel? This is in Matthew 24, and it's in the context. It's at the end of Jesus' description of many of the things that will happen during the tribulation period preceding his second coming. Then his second coming comes— And he says, just as lightning in the east is visible from the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. He then says, the the story of the fig tree, learn this lesson from the fig tree. When it blossoms, you know that spring is near, or summer is near. This many Because Israel is referred to elsewhere in Scripture as a fig tree, some want to connect Israel to this fig tree. I think it's a simple example that Jesus is saying that you will see the signs. The signs will be plain to you. And to add more to this, many will teach that because this represents Israel, that somehow they're becoming a nation or they're recapturing Jerusalem in 67, which they just celebrated the anniversary today in Israel with parades and so on. Uh, that somehow that will be an indication of the timing of the coming of the Lord within a generation. This generation that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 is the generation that will see the things that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. Therefore, it's the end times generation that will seize these things. We cannot know the timing of the Lord's return. And those who want to use the fig tree to set a date, I just think are, are, that's just an unbiblical idea. I refuse to set dates for a very simple reason. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any dates. That and Scripture says we can't know. We can't know. The The point that I point out to people over and over and over, because I get asked these questions all the time is, tell me, where do you stand with Jesus today? Are you obeying him? Do you love him? Are you ready to meet him face to face? And I, a couple of Sundays ago, uh, on Sunday morning, I said, you know, how many of you believe that Jesus will return you know, within the next 25 or 30 years, and I had a lot of hands go up. I said, well, a lot of you are in your 80s. You think you're going to live to be 110? You're going to meet him even before that, so you must be ready right now. And that's the point. I'm 73 years old. I don't know how much longer I've got, and it doesn't matter when that occurs because I want to go and be with the Lord Jesus. That's all I need. Whether the Lord returns or we die and we go to heaven, one way or another, we'll be in heaven. Love it. Yep. Here's, a, here's a comment. Thank you, guys. Especially if you go to that theme park that Bill's yeah, going to thank you. You right, pick option B. I'm trying to keep my mind off my theme <laughs> yeah, park okay. right now. Wow. All right. Thank you, guys, who talk. I listen every week, and I am a woman. Thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom. So helpful. It's very kind. Thank you. That's very Indeed. nice. All right, Tom Parrish, I'm looking your direction. My friend needed her fiancé to become Lutheran before they could get married in the Lutheran church. Is that still a requirement? Uh <clears throat> There are some, <coughs> excuse me. There are still some segments of Lutheranism. I didn't know that, that was a requirement in, anywhere in the Lutheran Church. Not by and large, it isn't. But there are still some that would push that. <coughs> I'm sorry. 
Uh, so, yeah, they are out there, but they're not the major part of Lutheranism. All right, that's God trying to get you to stop talking right now. <laughs> About Lutheranism, yeah. 90 minutes is his limit, I guess, right? It's... All right, Jeff, I'm looking your direction. Revelation uh, says that hell was created for Satan and his demons, so that... So what do you say to those who say the unsaved will not be damned for eternity? Well, we know this from Revelation 20 that it's, it says that the, the lake of fire, let's make a distinction between a place in Scripture that's called Hades and a place in Scripture that's called the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the, is the final fate of the lost and of Satan and his angels. Uh, so Scripture says that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire, and then right after that, it says the lost are thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. So look, we know the fate of of Satan. He is a defeated foe. As we read from Revelation 12, at the midpoint of the tribulation when he is thrown down, it says he knows he was enraged because he knows his time was short. And he's thrown into the lake of fire. And so are all the lost. So um, that's what Scripture declares very clearly. All right. Thank you, Jeff Verdorn. Here's a question that uh, just came in. How would God uh, judge children? What age should we introduce children to Jesus to be as born again? As soon as possible. I have a, Amen. One of my children was three years old, and we had just come back from my grandmother's funeral, and we were talking about that she had Jesus in her heart and uh, that we therefore know where she was going to go sure. or where she had already gone. And that night when we were reading stories, uh, I'll never forget it. My wife was sitting in the rocking chair with my son Samuel. He was about three years old and uh, three and a half years old. And he said, I want Jesus in my heartbeat. Yep. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's never too young to teach your children about the Lord. And the bottom line is, is that faith is not an intellectual exercise in and of itself. You don't have to be well-educated and have read everything to figure it out. Mm. Faith can come at any point in a person's life. And the Lord says, you know, to Jeremiah, before you were conceived in your mother's womb, I knew you. So mm-hmm. the Lord can work at any point. I know when Jim was pregnant for our first son, I did it for all three. Uh, I'd get on the couch at night after I was studying or whatever was going on, and I would talk to her tummy because the, I knew the baby was in there. And I would talk to the, the my boys about Jesus loves you and he's got a purpose for you. And I did that from day one. So I believe it's not intellectual by and large. It's heart, and the Lord can work in anybody's heart. And it doesn't matter if your child was born without, with all kind of handicaps or problems. The Lord can still speak to them, and the Lord can still use them. So Paul says to the Ephesians, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, your, your kids, did they go through a rebellious phase? Or don't we talk about your kids on that? <laughs> no, they, they all went to Christian school. They all uh, believed uh, at a young age, all went to Christian school, high school, and all of them chose Christian universities to go to, and all of them believe the Lord uh, today, and all are active uh, in studying Scripture, and uh, my youngest son, Sam, is active in worship and is a worship leader at our church, and uh, they all three have a very strong faith. So I am. They've been walking with the Lord from the earliest time that they can remember following Jesus. Yes, and there's no greater joy, as Scripture says, than knowing that your children are walking with the Lord. And so I, my heart is filled with joy whenever I speak of my Mm -hmm. kids. Good. And how many uh, grandkids do your parents have? My 
parents. Kind of a trick question. It is a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, I love your parents. I'm trying to think of how many grandkids uh, all together. Six, seven. Okay. Seven grandkids. Okay. Yeah. I have two. Does that count? Uh, no. Uh, no. Okay. No, those be Brett, your, my my your oldest parents. boy now has two kids. They're three and one. So your parents have two great-grandchildren. Yes, they do. Actually, actually more. One more than that, too. So. All right. All right. Thank you, uh, gentlemen, for staying even longer than, than planned. Good we, to be here. We were doing an a lot ext- of fun. extended version, and it ended up being extended times two. So. It always goes quick, Bill. It really does, doesn't yeah, it? It, it does. does. And I love when the listeners, uh, the questions today have been fantastic, haven't they? They have. Indeed. I mean, all over, all kinds of questions. Yep. These are good questions, and what I love about it, it forces me to think and to turn to the scriptures. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you guys have any final thoughts about my theme park? <laughs> well, we <laughs> think you ought to get going on it pretty quickly because well, summer's trust coming. Me, trust me. I'm I'm going to work right after this to get started. Now, I don't have much time for this world, Bill. Get I know. it done so I can go through it. <laughs> All right. You guys are making fun of me now, as you should be, because <laughs> I'm talking foolish. All right. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Two hours of guy talk or guys who talk. It's been a delight having uh, you with me. I hope you spent uh, part of your day uh, listening to Faith Radio, whether it's Carmen in the Morning or Susie or any of the shows that Faith Radio offers. And I especially like it if at the end of your day, on the drive home or whatever you're doing, maybe getting dinner ready, that you tune in the afternoon show. It means a whole lot to me. I really appreciate you. I care about you. I love you. I pray for you. And I hope you have a wonderful night. Rosie and I want to say thanks and have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.